You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. is impressed upon the heart of man. We call that natural law. The substance of moral and natural are the same. But then tied to particular covenants, God gives His positive laws. Right? Positive laws like don't eat from the tree. Positive laws like sacrifice something on the Day of Atonement. Right? Positive laws like Lord's Supper, baptism, things like that. This same law, right, the substance of the moral law was written on the heart of man. It continued to be the perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. It was, we'll see, all ten commandments were expected, and the violation of them was judged prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments, right? God's moral law was in effect. So God says, for example, for the first commandment, have no other gods before me. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, says to Abraham. I am the Lord Almighty. Walk blameless before me. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am to be your God. To be anachronistic, obey the first commandment towards me. Similarly, the worship of God was to be true and not false. There were not supposed to be idols, no graven images. Put away the foreign gods that are among you is a strange thing to say if foreign idols were not yet banned at that point. Right? Who are you to tell me what I can worship? Leviticus talks about, you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire of Molech, for all these abominations of the men of the land they had done, those that were before you. Right? So before the giving of the law at Sinai, there were abominations done in the land. How is that true if the moral law had not yet been in, been in effect? Say the same thing looking at Job. Job was talking about what they what scholars believe to be part of an idol worship. Right, and Job was one of the earlier Old Testament books to be written. There's an expectation of what is true and false worship even before the giving of the law at Sinai. Similarly, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Right, the third commandment: no blasphemous worship. Again, talking about the people that were in the land prior to the Israelites coming. 
It says, None of you shall profane the name of your God for all these abominations the men of the land had done who were here before you. And they defiled the land by it. All right. It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, Job says. So cursing God in your heart is defined as sin by one of the earliest Old Testament books before Sinai. Right. Remember the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. <clears throat> All right. We start with Genesis 2. When God ceased what He had been doing, He Shabbated, He stopped, He rested. And we'll talk more about this later, but it's significant that God... Let's say it this way. It didn't take God seven days. God took seven days. Right? He could have made everything in a microsecond, but He chose to take six days, and then to take one to do something else. Why would He do that if it not were for an example for His children made in His image? Before Exodus 20 at Sinai, we see in Exodus 16, Moses telling the people, tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And so the people rested on the Sabbath day. You didn't have any hint of somebody saying, what? what's a Sabbath? What? No, it's assumed knowledge prior to Sinai that they are to rest on the Sabbath. Right? This is a holy Sabbath. He didn't have to say, so that means you need to do this and this and this and not do these things. Right? He's saying that's a holy day. You know what to do. Do what God did. Looking backwards. Genesis 2. Significantly, and we'll talk about this later too, Jesus says the Sabbath was made for the Jews. The Sabbath was made for the Hebrews, right? Exodus 20. No, oh, the Sabbath was made for man. There's even an article there. We could say the Sabbath was made for the man. If you wanted to, press it and say it was Adam. Sabbath is grounded in creation, and thus the pattern remains and ought to have been observed, even if we don't have explicit reference of the patriarchs prior to Sinai obeying. Fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Luke records Adam and his genealogy all the way back, Jesus' genealogy, back to Adam, who was called the Son of God. should have honored his father. But because he heeded the voice of his wife and ate from the tree that he shouldn't have, he was judged. He was condemned. He was cursed. Ham, son of Noah, dishonored the, his father by looking upon his nakedness in the tent. Noah made a fool of himself, 
Shem and Japheth went out of the way to walk backwards and then put the cloak on their father, put the blanket, whatever it was, cover him up. They sought to honor their father, and they were they should be praised at least for that much. But Ham did not, and he was judged. The fifth commandment didn't start at Sinai. It started at the garden. Sixth commandment. Shall not murder, right? Well, you don't have to go very far in Genesis to find murder. And it was judged quickly. Cain rose up against Abel. God says, the blood of your brother cries out from the ground. It doesn't say, well, that's, that's an indifferent act that there's no moral standard against right now. But if you did this after Exodus 20, you'd be in trouble. No, there's an objective moral standard that is fixed. Jesus even calls the devil the father of lies and the murderer from the beginning. That's significant. He was not merely a murderer since Exodus 20. No adultery, seventh commandment. The people of Sodom were judged in part for their wicked sexuality. Sodomites. Potiphar's wife and her action, her desire, her command even to Joseph saying, lie with me. Joseph calls great wickedness and a sin against God. Right? The creation ordinance of marriage is built upon God's standard of what marriage ought to be, what holiness looks like within the context of marriage. Leviticus, again, condemning the people in the land. Right? You shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself for her for all these abominations the men of the land have done the men who are here before you side note the people that get upset about the purging of canaan they need to read some of this stuff they were abomin abominable right they were abominating god they were worthy of judgment because God's law condemns every single one of us outside of Christ. And therefore, we're worthy to be killed. We have earned death. Job says, why would I even look upon a young woman? Right? Job is pictured for us in that book as being an example of what we ought to do. And Job was before Sinai. Eighth commandment, right? Don't steal. Don't take what's yours. Adam and Eve, of course, the prime example of that. See others' examples there from Genesis. Job even mentions thievery. 
it's understood that theft is wrong. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. Again, we have the devil from the beginning. He's the father of lies. He's the slanderer. He's the accuser. He's the hasatan. The diabolos. The serpent, you will surely not die. The greatest lie ever. Cain said, I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? Sin leads to more sin. And as you see, you break one, you break more. And when you see a broken Ten Commandment, you break God's moral law, you begin to see shockwaves of more broken commandments. You can't just break one and keep it in isolation. I'm going to have my pet sin over here, and it's isolated from all the rest. You break one, you remain unrepentant. It breaks shockwaves, which should terrify us in, in a very good sense. right? That should sober us. The slander, bearing false witness... Several references to that in Job. Tenth commandment, coveting, right? That was Eve saw that the fruit was desirous. Which doesn't mean she looked at it and objectively affirmed the beauty of the fruit on the tree. Right? No, she craved it. She coveted that. She longed for it. We'll talk more about desire in a little bit. But that was broken. That was the tenth commandment broken. Right? Like we read earlier, Genesis 6, every intent of the thoughts of mankind in his heart was only ever evil continually. The over-the-top repetitiveness of the biblical Hebrew there is just rubbing your nose in the fact that Depravity is on display there. And it's not merely every action that they ever did was sinful, right? Every intention of the thoughts of his heart. That's, that's prime. That's, that's, that's proximal. That's before it ever gets out of our mouth, before it even gets to our fingertips. It's at the level of heart. Because the law is spiritual, as we will see shortly. So all of that was just to briefly survey that the moral law existed and was in effect, and in fact was judging and condemning all of mankind before Exodus 20 and the giving of the law. Again, affirming the abiding, unchanging standard of morality, God's moral law. We're going to keep going, press on into what is called Lecture 4 in the notes. We're going to get to Sinai, the giving of the law, the Mosaic law. Basil Manley Jr., one of the founding faculty members of Southern Seminary, whose father was 
a pastor at the First Baptist, the historic First Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, and later a president of this small little school in Tuscaloosa that is now called the University of Alabama. Basil Manley says, There is such simplicity, such grandeur, such regal breadth of control, such divine adaptation to the human heart in the Decalogue and its subsequent precepts based upon it, as to cast utterly into shade all the injunctions and advices that have come from heathen sources and to make them seem entirely puerile and empty. Such a great statement, right? It's the law and the precepts built upon it is so glorious, so all-encompassing, that it everything else that pagans could come up with doesn't even come close. Right? The Hammurabi Code, right? The U.S. Constitution, the U.S. civil system, whatever. You pick whatever legal system that pagans could come up with, and it never is going to be as incisive and all encompassing as the Decalogue could ever be. God's law is perfect. You can't improve upon it. In fact, when you improve upon it, you screw it up. So, the Mosaic Law as a structure. If you'd like, you can turn to Exodus 20 and generally follow along. I'm not going to be exegetically rigorous here. I am by no means a Hebrew scholar. But it's significant to know that God's moral law is revealed and comprehended into a larger covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant made with Israel through Moses. The moral law of God is the heart of the Mosaic Covenant. We see that Exodus 19 to 24 is even called the Book of the Covenant. We have the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments, laws added upon that. And then the book of the covenant is covenants ratified. You can read more about that there. Actually, Gentry and Wellam's Kingdom Through Covenant is really good on that part, on the, the structure of the Mosaic Covenant. I'll make a note in passing. There are differences in the numbering of the Ten Commandments. So if you take, you know, one and two and combine those, but then break apart the bottom one, um, I'm going to assume the standard Protestant and Reformed numbering. I have assumed that already, and I will continue to do so. If you want to read more on it, you, I've got some footnotes there. Um, Sometimes Roman Catholics will follow a different number. Um, I'm just letting you know there is a difference out there. I don't think that it makes that big a deal in the content. Like the law, the same words are used, it's just how you divide it up. So, um, the Mosaic Law. Our confession. Chapter 19, paragraphs 3 through 5, explain for us what has come to be known as the trifold division 
or the threefold division, or even the tripartite division of the Old Covenant law. This is a category that we understand in light of later revelation, right? God doesn't say to Moses right after the Ten Commandments, now Moses, that was the end of the moral category of the law. You will now transition to the judicial or the ceremonial, right? No, it's a, these are categories. We're doing systematic theology, right? We're taking the whole of Scripture and we're looking and trying to see what the individual says in light of the whole, the particular says in light of all of Scripture. And in light of Christ's coming and language of fulfillment and things in Paul and in Hebrews and other places, we have these three helpful categories. Ceremonial, the judicial, and the moral. The threefold distinction was not um, original to the Reformers. I think it antedates them. But it begins to get greater clarity with the Reformers. Calvin is especially helpful on the issues. That trifold division is often, like I, I don't know how many times in class I heard, well, uh, it's, it's not in the text, and who gets to determine what's, uh, what's moral and what's not? Right? Who gets to determine what's ceremonial, what's judicial? Like, you're not, you're not, that's not the point. <laughs> it's pretty clear, as I'll talk about in a minute, the distinction between the moral law and the other two. If you want, we can fight about if it's ceremonial or judicial. To me, they're both fulfilled, so I, I, it's not that big a deal. Um, So read uh, Philip Ross from the finger of God for a trifold division, a defense of the trifold division of the law. I was also really encouraged, if you look down on, I'm on page 14, footnote 32, there was an article in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society two years ago defending the trifold division of the law. Like, man, I've got a long lost brother somewhere out there that is swimming upstream against all these... Uh, Modern guys that say, no, it's useless. So, good for him. Um, and he looks, he brought up, uh, historically, if I remember right, he looks at like Aquinas and some other older guys. It's really good. So, how do we begin to think about this division of the law? Well, we can notice, first of all, a linguistic distinction between the Decalogue which is Greek for the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, and the rest of the Old Covenant laws. So I'm distinguishing between the moral law as revealed in Moses, the Ten Commandments, and the other, everything else, the judicial, the ceremonial. There's linguistic differences. We have what the text calls the Ten Words, Hebrew calls them that. And then we have Exodus 21, 22, and 23. We have the judgments. Gentry does a really good job talking about this distinction, by the way, for a linguistic expert. <clears throat> the Decalogue is also clearly given privilege. Right? 
the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, is presented as universal absolutes. You shall not murder. That's for everyone, all the time, forever. Right? There's no qualification. There's no if-then conditional statements. But then when you get past the ten words, things start looking a little different. If a man does this and this and this, then da-da-da-da-da. Right? Very different. Case studies. Case laws. If this happens, then you do this. If this, then this. The ten words are different than the judgments. The judgments are almost functioning like legal precedents for us today in our legal system. The structure of the text, the nature of the way that the laws are laid out, the, the difference in their manner of delivery, right? Which of the Mosaic laws were written by the absolute finger of God Himself? Not all of them. Ten words. Which of them were placed or were written on stone and which were written on paper or scroll or whatever he wrote on? Not stone. Which were put in the Ark of the Covenant? Right? There's significant difference between the moral and everything else. That's important. The ten words were given from Sinai with loud thunder, flashes of lightning, a thick cloud, a very loud trumpet blast. Exodus 19. The other laws weren't revealed that way. Ten words were placed in the ark and given a special honor, an honor not given to the remainder of the old covenant law. Ten words were distinct from the judgments. They're related they're connected. The judgments were given, built upon the moral law, and fleshed out for their particular covenantal setting. All right? You can start looking at the New Testament too. Jesus says, Until heaven and earth pass away, not one dot, not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away. Well, how can he say that? There's, there's an abiding continuity in the law. Then why aren't we still doing the sacrifices? If he means the whole Mosaic Covenant is, as some people today would say, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant at all. Right? It's all done away with. Well, what is Jesus saying there? Right? He goes on to preach his Sermon on the Mount and say, Things like, do not murder, do not commit adultery, don't lie. He's expounding the part of the law that will remain until the heavens and earth pass away, which is the moral law, the ten words. Paul even has a category for Gentiles who, quote, keep the law without being circumcised. Well, they're keeping the moral law that's stamped upon their heart. They're keeping, the, in one sense, the natural law of God, even though they themselves don't have the special revelation of Moses. They're being a law unto themselves. And in Ephesians 2, 
Paul talks about the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So he's speaking of law in terms of the law of commandments, the ten words expressed in particular ordinances. There's a distinction. Christ didn't abolish the law of commandments, to use Pauline language. He abolished the law expressed in ordinances. These ordinances are the national decrees, the rules of Israel, the judicial laws, keeping segregated you know, Jews and Gentiles. But Paul's point in Ephesians 2 there is he has torn down the wall of dividing hostility. Praise God, right? The nations, not just Israel, the nations can be now the people of God. Hallelujah. So the New Testament authors affirm these distinctions within the Mosaic Law itself. That's in sum, in conclusion. We see it within the text itself when we see that interpretation confirmed in the New Testament. Hmm. So, to pick up language from the confession, the ceremonial laws. So our confession after chapter 19 talks about God's moral law in paragraphs 1 and 2. It begins to move on to the ceremonial laws. I'll read it to you. Besides this law commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances. That means typological from tupas in Greek. Partly of worship, partly prefiguring Christ, His graces, His actions, His sufferings, His benefits, partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all of which ceremonial laws being appointed only to this time of reformation are by Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver, who was furnished with power from the Father for that end, abrogated and taken away. So God was pleased to give to the Old Covenant people of God, the ceremonial portion of the law, to teach us things. To put it very simply, if you had never heard of any of the Old Testament, and then you hear of Hebrews, of Christ being our great high priest, that category of priest would mean nothing to you. Right? You don't, you, you don't have you don't even know what that means. He made a great sacrifice. What is like that? That has very little meaning. But because of the types and shadows, the pictures found in the ceremonial law, right? Think about the Day of Atonement, the scapegoat, the sprinkling of blood upon the altar. Those pictures fill out for us the role that Christ was going to play. They're teaching us, right? In light of later revelation, we can then go back and preach the Old Testament and its laws. He set it up on the tee for us to knock it out of the park, right? So you could preach through Deuteronomy, you could preach through Leviticus, and you could preach it in such a way that none of this is relevant for us today, it's all fulfilled in Christ, move on. Or you can go through and say, 
Look at how this text is screaming to us about Jesus. Because these typical ordinances point to Christ. It showed us, showed the Israelites at the time how they were supposed to relate to God under that covenant. Right? There were positive laws that once they became covenantally enacted upon them, they became morally binding, so that violating those positive laws then was morally sinful. But because that covenant has been fulfilled in Christ, we're no longer bound by those positive laws. Praise the Lord, I don't have to bring cattle into my sanctuary and slit their throats, sprinkle it all over. Right? We don't have to pack up our bags and fly to Jerusalem. I suppose we could you know, sing the, the Psalms of Ascent as we fly, fly over there. I don't know how that would work. But we don't have to go to a particular place to worship anymore. Praise God. The gospel is not bound by a specific geographical location anymore. We can worship anywhere. And we're not bound by a faulty human priest anymore. We have a great high priest. Man, I love Hebrews. So the next category, the civil or judicial law. This is paragraph four of our confession to, to them, right? Old covenant people of God, he gave them sundry or various judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not ob obliging any now by virtue of that institution. So those positive laws are done away with. Does that mean they're then useless? Well, no. Their general equity only being of moral use for us. So we look at the positive laws. We try and see its connection to the moral law. How did God flesh out this moral law in that particular setting? We try and learn something about that. This is very helpful for us. We're not bound by it, but it's useful for us. So... Um, I don't remember if I had examples of this in here. For example, the, the judicial laws make a distinction between voluntary and accidental murder. That's an important thing. If I get in a car wreck, you know, I'll, Lord forbid that ever happens, and somebody dies, I am responsible. That is different in the Old Covenant law, and I think it should be different today, between me calculating, planning, and then going and murdering someone with my own bare hands. That should be viewed as different. That should be punished differently. And thankfully, our society today, our legal system, does have differences you know, between murder and manslaughter. That's helpful. The Old Covenant civil laws, the judicial laws, aren't binding on us, but they do help teach us a little bit. Right? When, 
when the old covenant judicial laws require two or three witnesses, Paul picks that up. He says, you don't accept a charge against an elder unless there's two or three witnesses, right? Because slander can topple anyone. It's very helpful for us to have two or three witnesses. So, the general equity being of moral use for us. Um, So what's the use of this law? Going down to number six there. Well, before we go to that, I I will note in passing, there are uh, a category of people, of of, um, interpreters out there, that would be labeled theonomists, or it's just theo, God, namas, law. They would say that some portion of the civil or judicial laws ought to be in effect today. Um, I'm not going to nuance every position because there's all sorts of different varieties of them out there. Um, Robert Godfrey has an edited volume called Theonomy, a Reformed Critique. It's got some good stuff in it. Uh, I think Dr. Waldron, yeah, he wrote an assessment of Theonomy. Um, I think it's really, really helpful for us to have these categories of moral law and positive laws that helps us in these discussions. I'm not going to go into full critique of that. Uh, When I started preparing for this class, at first I was like, man, how am I going to fill 24 lectures? And then I said at the end of it, like, man, I can't hit every error. There's so many errors on this. Like, So I'm going to try and just state positively what the confession and what the main of Reformed theology has taught on these issues. And I'll show you some resources on some of these errors, like theonomy. And then if you have particular questions for theonomists, um, that would be great to bring up at the Q&A time with me and Dr. Waldron tomorrow. So if you've got a good question about that, jot it down. That would be a good time for that. The confession rightly interpreted, boxes out theonomy as a possibility. Um, So I don't think you can consistently hold to the 1689 or the main of Reformed theology and also say that civil magistrates need to enforce Old Covenant laws in the nation, in our nation today. Um, It's really hard to be a consistent theonomist too, by the way. You want all of the laws? No. Well, which laws? Like, well, the ones that I think are good. Like, ah, I guess that's not how it works. Um, so we'll talk about theonomy, I'm sure, at the Q&A time. Moving on. So what are the effects of the law, right? Calvin is credited, though it was not purely original to him, kind of laying out the three purposes of the law. These are important. The three purposes of the law. The first is that the law is revelatory. Right? Use another analogy. It's a mirror. God's law reflects God's perfect righteousness. 
tells us about God. It reveals to us God's character. And conversely, post-fall, it tells us who we're not. It shows us how sinful we are. Right? It cuts us to the heart. Right? The Word of God is living and active. And it feels especially living when someone's preaching the law really well. <laughs> it cuts. And this is an important. We, we cannot skip this. You skip over that, you're short-circuiting pastoral ministry. When, when somebody comes to you and they're, they need counseling, you need to know the law really well to be able to start to figure out what's going on in their heart. You need to know that. We'll, we'll press into that later. Some languages that the law as revelatory is our schoolmaster, is our tutor that drives us to Christ, right? It, it cuts us, it opens it us up, it fillets us open, shows us how sinful we are, and by that, it makes us clamor for a Savior. Second, the law is restraining. It restrains evil. This is for believers and unbelievers, right? The law cannot change human hearts, but it can curb some human sinfulness. And thankfully, people have natural law, even as unbelievers. They know what's wrong. And when they know that there are consequences for being especially wicked, it will, in some measure, restrain the wickedness by God's common grace. People say, well, sure doesn't look like it. Every single person on I-85 is doing 85 miles an hour. The signs up on the road don't seem to be restraining anything. Well, yeah, it's true. How many of them are doing 105, though? Very few, if any. So it doesn't restrain perfectly, doesn't restrain completely. Right? Everybody in America knows murder is wrong, and yet people still murder. But it's not near as bad. By God's grace. And then third purpose of the law is that it guides. It shows us what holiness ought to look like. It's for believers. This is our path of righteousness. Right? It shows us what is pleasing to God. Jesus even said, if you love me, you will be sure to take the Lord's Supper and do baptism. Like, no, you'll, you'll keep my commandments. You'll obey my laws. It shows us what holiness will look like, what it should look like. I guess. Some other Reformed commentary on this issue. The Heidelberg Catechism says, If no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached to us so strictly? Why do you keep preaching a standard that none of us can keep? It's a great question. 
related to the uses of the law, the catechism answers, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. So it reveals to us who we are and drives us to Christ. That's the first use of the law. Second, so that while we're praying for the grace of for, uh, praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life when we reach the goal of perfection. That's the third use of the law. So that we can strive to grow in holiness, which looks like lawfulness. All right? Westminster Larger Catechism, you can see those questions and answers there. What's the use of the moral law for the unregenerate man? Well, it pricks their consciousness. It scares them with wrath. It drives them to Christ. leaves them inexcusable. Right? They can't close on Christ, to use older language. shows them they need a Savior. So what's the use of the moral law? Question 97 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. What's the use of the law for the believer? Although they're delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works. That means we don't have to obey the law perfectly for our salvation. Yet besides that, the general uses with them... Um, to them with all men. It's a special use to show them how they are bound to Christ for His fulfilling of it and enduring the curse thereof in the place of us for our good and thereby to promote, prom gosh, to provoke them to more thankfulness and to express the same in their greater care to conform themselves thereunto as their rule of obedience. So the Westminster Larger Catechism highlights for us that it's not primarily out of sense of duty, but out of a sense of thankfulness provoked by reflection upon the moral law and Christ's fulfillment of it. Right? We reflect upon the gospel, and out of a heart of gratitude and thankfulness, we are propelled to express the same holiness to the law. Love drives us to seek to fulfill the law. We'll never do it perfectly in this life. But God is increasingly pleased as we are driven, compelled by His grace to obey the law. So a few applications. Knowing the trifold division of the law most simply lets us know what we're obligated to do. Right? You get this wrong... You get all sorts of wonky stuff happening in theology, right? There's, you know, there used to be these bookstores called Lifeways, and they had these, they had these books in them every so often. You know, the, the you know, be some kind of the Daniel diet or the whatever diet. You know, like we're just going to eat vegetables for thirty days, and like that's fine. You're free in Christ to do that. But the moment you tell me that I can't have bacon anymore, like I'm, I'm, I'm not happy, right? You have messed up law and gospel at that point. Most simply, right? We live in the new covenant. We can have pork and we can eat shellfish and we can wear whatever stitched together clothing fibers we want. And, you know, but the, when you screw up the trifold division of the law, 
then you're not always left with no law. You're left with whatever laws men press upon you. That's the danger. You, you, you screw up the trifold division of the law, you inadvertently undermine Christian liberty, the doctrine of Christian liberty, and you bind men's consciences not by no law, but by whatever law you determine. And that's dangerous. You don't want that. Right? The second, second application, I mentioned this earlier, the, the judgments or the ceremonial and civil laws give us examples of how moral law can be applied and interpreted. That's helpful for us when we think through difficult situations. There's my example. I knew I had it in here somewhere. Distinction between intentional and unintentional murder. That's helpful when we're thinking through things. Um, when we're thinking through, like I, I don't know how many hours as a pastor's body we have agonized through certain church discipline situations. Right? And how do we think through guilt? And things are nothing in this life is clear and simple except you know what God's revealed to us. But in situations pastorally, I mean seminary, my seminary experience led me to believe that you know so things would be pretty simple. We've got God's word, we can figure it out. Like, no, there's a whole lot of gray. And you need the Holy Spirit's wisdom. <laughs> And you need a plurality of men to help you figure out some of these situations because it can be hard. And the Old Testament civil and ceremonial, particularly the uh, civil laws and the case studies, help us to think through things. You know, what is a what is a valid witness when we have slander? What might be slander or might be a true accusation? You know, a true uh, accusation against somebody. What makes a valid witness? How do we weigh these things? And how did the judges handle things? Who did they go and seek out when they were trying to adjudicate some of these things? Like, that's helpful. It's helpful for us. Um, we'll talk more about these categories throughout the class, but are there any initial questions about the divisions of the law? Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.